Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Indubitably. Back to Indubitably. Did, did we leave? Okay, no, we didn't abandon you, but we did take a break of sorts for the holidays and put out a couple episodes with a bit of a different feel to them. One was our holiday dinner party where we invited on some of our old guests to talk about, I, I guess, whatever they wanted. Yeah, we talked Christmas carols, Disney adults, aliens, you know, the usual standard debate topics you'll hear on this here podcast. <laughs> yeah. So if you ever wondered what a dinner party with five debaters would sound like, give that a listen. And then for New Year's, our most recent episode was a, I guess, quote, meet the hosts show. Yeah, we got up close and personal. People learned that we might actually be friends. We might. We might. Me, you, and Shitty Kitty. <laughs> and Kingsley and Nala. We didn't talk much about my cats for a change. So now I guess when we say, I'm Josh. And I'm Kelly. Uh, hopefully you'll understand a bit more about what that means. But now we are back, as promised, to our regularly scheduled programming and we are beginning the year by talking about killer robots? Dun dun dun. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. So today's episode is about uh, robot death squads. Well, specifically police technology. We'll be asking questions about how we best secure public safety without violating rights and where we draw the balance between ensuring our police forces are properly equipped without going dangerously overboard. Mm -hmm. These questions are hardly new. Maybe a couple of the most common iterations of this debate would be should specifically in America, police carry guns as a subsect of a larger Second Amendment debate in this country, which we have an episode on, by the way, or proposals to defund the police, which have been gaining more recent popularity, and we'll likely be doing an upcoming episode on that. So look for that. Today, we're going to be skipping those topics in this particular episode because we want to talk about some more modern slash high-tech tools police forces are starting to implement, like killer robots. Their official names, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. In particular, the inspiration for this episode is that in November of last year, we can say that now we're in a new year. Mm -hmm. Exciting. In November, the San Francisco Police Department proposed approving the use of remote-controlled robots with deadly force. Um, it would have allowed police to equip robots with explosives to, quote, contact, incapacitate, or disorient violent, armed, or dangerous suspects. It's like Wally with an attitude. <laughs> Don't put that on Wally. Okay, fine. Eva. Sweet, sweet baby angel robot. <laughs> the only robot I'm okay with. What was the robot that was like foreign contaminant? I don't remember. Uh, you know more about Disney than I do, I think. Mm, that seems like something our police would say. <laughs> This proposal was originally approved by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, but during the second of two required votes, they changed their mind and banned the use of lethal force by police robots. I can imagine the conversation. They were like, robots? Bombs? Robots with bombs? 
Okay, okay, fine. Too far, too far. They're used to proposing things that probably have the same like chocolate peanut butter combination effect. If this thing is good and this thing is good, together they're even better. But that has to mean that they at one point thought that bombs were good. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess they voted originally. There's two rounds of votes. Originally, they approved this proposal. And then there was a pretty serious public backlash. And after that, the second time around, they said, okay, JK, we're we're not going to actually approve the lethal force component. So they're still going to be robots. Um, they're still going to go do their thing used by the police department. But the lethal force aspect of this has been taken off the table. Still perhaps a concern having robots involved at all in policing. Mm-hmm. Right. So for the conversation, the rest of this episode... We'll be breaking things up into two different types of technology that the police are implementing. The first category is force, and the second is surveillance. And I think each gives a unique type of power to police, but also poses unique threats to the populace. So first, robots. Back to our killer robot cops. And I think what's important here is that just because it was voted down in this particular instance, doesn't mean necessarily that it's gone away. In fact, this isn't the first time that we've heard this idea. It's just the most recent. Right. In 2016, the Dallas Police Department ended a standoff with a gunman suspected of killing five officers by blowing him up with a bomb attached to a robot in what was believed to be the first lethal use of technology by an American law enforcement agency. And I think this example in in 2016 is probably the biggest argument for killer robots. This this guy knew his life was over. At the point where you've killed five police officers, there is no way that this is going to end well for you. He was just going to take out as many people as possible on his own way out. And realistically, if he died in a shootout, if he died in a raid, if he died because he was put to death, capital punishment, if he died later on in jail, does it really matter? His life was over. I have a concern about that, though. If we're going towards robots equipped with bombs during a standoff in which you might usually have a negotiator, perhaps that becomes the easier option in situations where it might not have ended as tragically. Like, does this uh, replace hostage negotiations? Does this replace the type of psychological aspect of policing that might be less harmful to human life? I guess there could be instances where negotiations could work, but I don't think this is one of them. I I think that there would be a lot of cases where you know that that person is just delaying the inevitable. And the biggest concern at that point is how do we minimize the deaths on the other side of the equation? At the point where that criminal has sort of resigned themselves to their fate, Um, how do we protect the officers as they try to bring an end to the situation? And robot, Wally with, oh, maybe the E stands for explosives. Wall explosives might be our best option. As as, uh, funny as that might be, I, I do have concerns that when a tool becomes accessible to the police, it becomes the default tool rather than the one that they use with discretion. We had somebody in our community who posed a minor risk because he was wielding a knife and he could have been taken out with non-lethal force, but he was shot to death by police. And that's not an uncommon story. I just worry that this is going to be used excessively. Mm, That's definitely a valid concern. Like, I I think it's 
probably obvious that this would protect police by bringing them out of harm's way. But yeah, what about the public? Police brutality is obviously a huge issue. But I don't know, to me, it seems counterintuitively, but it seems as though this would help reduce the problems there. Like giving an extra option for lethal force, but making it one that removes the police from the immediacy of the situation should be a net reduction in accidental or wrongful violence. If the robots are acting completely autonomously, I guess that's possibly the case, but they are built and managed by people, people who have shown a tendency towards excessive violence. Mm. But isn't that violence usually as a result of perceived threats to the officer, usually perceived, sometimes real, threats to their well-being? In some cases, but I have concerns. Surprise. I would imagine that a robot would slow down the process, though. And, And any kind of, in a situation like that that's so tense and so reactive, Anything that slows down the decision making, like you've got this little thing with the bomb on its back, slowly, like slowly rolling towards the bad guys. Uh, that's better than a sort of hand to hand or person to person, face to face confrontation. Unless it's a Boston Dynamics dog that jumps on somebody and has a bomb in its torso. <laughs> okay, so what you're saying is this is okay as long as there's a speed limit on the robot. I'm not saying it's okay at all. Don't try to trap me, Josh. I know what you're doing. <laughs> Despite my qualms about this. I do understand that government and arms of the government, the police in particular, are there to strike a balance between two competing values, one of which being privacy, freedom, things like our individual rights, and other interests such as security and safety and reduction of crime and all those other aspects of the things that police try to control. So where do the robots stand in the middle of this like competing paradigm. Do you think robots would shift things in favor of public safety? At least that would be the argument that assumes that the person who we've identified as the criminal who is posing a threat to public safety, we've correctly identified them. And the robot gives us a tool to more easily capture, detain, incapacitate, to use the proposal from San Francisco, to incapacitate this person to ensure that they can no longer pose a threat to the public, right? Like assuming that scenario is accurately depicted, the robot shifts the balance pro-public safety at the expense of the rights of suspects. In in general, I think people typically vote in favor of those sorts of trade-offs. I think people err on the side of safety even when their perception of what is unsafe is overblown. So what would be the criteria for this actually being a way to ensure safety in a way that does not harm things like our values and freedoms. The robots would have to be used with discretion. They couldn't just be set on the public without any type of control over them. Well, here's here's where I think that the just functionally, the way these robots work speaks in their favor. And that is in San Francisco, at least, they don't have like a room of robots with bombs on their back just waiting to be deployed. <laughs> this is something that can be assembled and and sent out into the field. It's not like cops have this in their trunk. So that means that it's not something that can just be utilized on a random traffic stop or in a random encounter with somebody just out in the neighborhood by a by a regular patrol officer. It is a situation in which somebody has barricaded themselves. They've taken a hostage. Things that take hours 
sometimes for the police to surround, try negotiating, negotiations fail. Now they're to the point where, okay, what do we do? That's when the robot goes in. So I think the scenario that we're talking about and how long it takes for this robot to be deployed kind of builds in some safeguards there to where it won't fall prey to some of the the concerns. Maybe right now, because these things are not as widely used or produced yet, but in the future, their costs will drive down and they will become more prevalent, especially as we see more police investing in technology that previously we didn't expect them to have, like militarization, uh, the supplies that they have are probably a lot of excessive force potential behind them with uh, some of like the tank type vehicles that they have in like the Midwest. It doesn't make sense why they have them. Oh, we're going to get to the tanks. (laughs) We'll get to the tanks. But I'm thinking about a corollary between where we initially saw drones appear, extremely expensive, usually held by military uh, parties or private corporations with tons of money. And now you can just like go buy a drone. So what's to say that in the future, the police will not be able to literally have one of these robots in every police vehicle? That, that is a valid concern. I think that the trend is certainly increases in militarization and one department, one city somewhere implementing a type of technology and then everybody else picking up that same technology. So certainly these sorts of things spread at a, at a pretty alarming rate. So even if we're not concerned with the way it's implementing now, does that mean we we stop it? Like, let's say this is implemented well, and there are valid uses and valid constraints on it as it currently stands. Is the fear of it spreading enough for us to just cease implementation as is? There are things that indicate that we should probably be uncomfortable with how it's taking place right now, even if it's on a smaller scale. For instance, in 2022, last year, we can say that now, Seattle police approved $2.3 million in funding from Homeland Security, which included funding for tactical robots. I like killer robots better. Well, they probably put it in a way that was a little less jarring for the public, but they are two regional tactical robots, and they'll be deploying one new unit in Seattle and another in Tacoma, which is not that close to Seattle. So it's a little interesting that Seattle police are going to have a presence in Tacoma. But the Homeland Security element of this is the first alarm bell I'm seeing with how is this actually coming about to be accessible for police? Mm-hmm. I did say a bit ago that we weren't going to talk too much in this particular episode about the concept of defunding the police, but it's certainly worth when you see a $2.3 million price tag on these robots and the infrequency in which they would probably be used, at least currently, it does make you ask the question, what could that $2.3 million be used for? And could it be used more effectively for public safety to protect police officers, et cetera? I find the dollar amount to be the less uh, upsetting part of this because money is fake and we all know that. But the Homeland Security influence over municipal police, that is where I think things start to get a little weird. Having federal involvement with local policing is a little scary. That's right. You heard it here first. Kelly doesn't trust the government. (laughs) Who would have thunk? (laughs) It's definitely important to keep a distinction between local police municipalities and 
national organizations, I think they're meant to do very different things. And that blurring of lines can be dangerous and something we're going to talk about in a bit. But it's hard to deny that these extra resources, I know you don't want to talk about the money, but it's hard to deny that these extra resources do serve a function in keeping at least the police officers safer. Every drone that's out there or robot that's out there on the streets dealing with dangerous individuals in these scenarios is a police officer that isn't. Okay, I will admit, as vocal as I get about over-policing in this country, and I'm sure when we get to the police defunding episode, we'll hear a lot of my opinions, I don't actually want police officers to die in the line of duty. I get that. I see the value in that. And uh, preservation of human life is pretty paramount when it comes to both sides of the policing equation, both in the public that they're protecting and making sure they get out alive. I'm not totally convinced this is going to actually achieve that, though. You know what else keeps police safe besides robots throwing bombs at bad guys? If that actually keeps police safe. But anyway, what else keeps police safe besides bomb chucking robots? Tanks. Oh, boy. Now, if we're worried about the federal government's involvement in local policing, I think we can directly say that we're concerned with how much local police is starting to look like the United States military. Yeah, and this is where, you know, the the backlash against the robots. I was reading articles about civil rights groups, et cetera, specifically after the San Francisco vote. And I was trying to find something tangible in their opposition to it between those two votes that caused for the um, board to reverse their decision. And it was really like just generic worries about militarization. And again, in my opinion, when we limit it to these specific robots and the ways that they would be implemented and the uses that we have for them, it seems a bit overblown. But then when you see this like armored tank rolling down the streets, maybe concerns about you know, the slippery slope towards militarization might be founded. Let's go back to the public perceptions, because you you stated earlier that people will vote in the interest of safety if they believe that the safety is in pursuit of protecting our rights and that it's very well balanced. I'm concerned about the people who can see that their local police department is just totally packed with ammunition and automatic weapons and tanks and all this high-tech gear and not see that as like a threat that that is in the interest of protecting them not to be used against them by the police. Mm -hmm. And if the intentions of this technology and this militarization are in cases of, for example, hostage situations or bad guys barricading themselves behind, you know, moats and castle drawbridges, et cetera, um, that that might be the intention up front, but certainly these things have been implemented more and more commonly. For example, the use of SWAT teams, special weapons and tactics, became especially common for drug searches. An ACLU study found that 62% of SWAT deployments were for drug raids and that 79% involved raids on private homes. So they found that only 7% fell into those categories for which the technique was originally intended, hostage negotiations or barricades. And, you know, out of this 80% that were raids on private homes, there were a lot of cases in which civilians, including infants, were killed or injured 
due to police use of force in military-style raids. So if you're just an average citizen, it does have to be in the back of your mind. Like if the police fuck up and they identify my house as somewhere that's selling or producing drugs and I get raided, uh, there is a real danger to that. This was in Cornelia, Georgia, where a SWAT team looking for drugs in a private residence threw a flashbang grenade into a house and it landed in the playpen of a 19-month-old baby boy. I think this brings up an underlying theme for all of the technology, though. And it's the, ironically, guns don't kill people, people kill people. All of this technology is a tool. And it could probably be super helpful, keep everybody involved safer. All of these scenarios play out better. Or... It could lead to disasters like this 19-month-old boy being the victim of a flashbang grenade. Can you imagine? Like, this is a normal, a person just at home minding their own business, and you're literally, like, invaded by the military. This has to be one of the wildest experiences that could possibly happen. I mean, this is a refrain we hear over and over again. Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. People are being victimized by inaccurate police work and the over-militarization of the police, which are more capable of killing people, becoming judge-jury-executioner based upon faulty judgment. And back to the idea of robots in and of themselves, I'm not convinced the police won't deploy robots in the same manner. They are impulsive and they use tools, often poorly. Robots are a tool that can be used poorly. So I know you say you don't care about the money, but you know, in my mind, if we have more and more lethal tools that are more and more capable of just causing harm, to me, in order for those to be implemented effectively, the training has to be better and better. Right? Like as your weapons get more advanced, you as a law enforcement officer have to be able to handle that, make better decisions be better trained. And that kind of money, $2.3 million, how much training or just higher pay to attract higher quality officers? That, like, that money could be used, I think, in better ways. I happen to have a little bit of knowledge about the training and compensation of police. <laughs> they are trained for a very long time. And then when they're out of the academy, they are often kind of treated as interns for a little bit too within their own departments and given kind of like a big brother program to get them fully trained up on that particular department's particular needs and procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So are you saying it's hopeless? At a certain point, we just have to accept that these mistakes of this gravity are going to be made, and therefore we should probably limit the just technical ability that they have to wreak destruction? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Short answer, yep. I'm not an optimist about this. We have seen very few examples of police departments that have been able to turn the tide when it comes to their overall kill rate of civilians. There are some, but the amount of effort that it takes to change the overall dominant philosophies of policing and to reject some of the technologies that make it so easy to kill as easily as they do, I just, I I don't have any optimism. This is where I think it's important also to make a distinction between police departments and federal agencies, the FBI, U.S. Marshals, etc. Because when we're talking about tanks, SWAT teams, 
robots. In my mind, it brings up images of like Ruby Ridge or Waco, where we have equally heavily armed militias holding out against the police. But in those instances, like I was saying before, it's not something that happens spur of the moment. We know they're there. They know we're coming. They're not going anywhere. We have the time to bring properly trained and well-equipped, even militarily equipped forces into the situation. So that, I think, is reasonable. I do think there's a difference with that. I, I see a big difference between people whose only job is to be a tactical force that goes in for specialized missions and deals with the entire psychological makeup of the people that they're approaching and has dedicated tactical training and a huge amount of oversight. But when you've got like Officer Frank, who's doing like a dare presentation one day, trying to defuse a hostage situation the next day, I don't know if he's got that kind of skill set. That being said, though, a lot of times it is the regular municipal police that are the ones that are in danger. In 2021, felonious killings of police reached a 25-year high at 73 deaths. It's it's not a huge number, but it's, you know, one is too many. 73 is 73 times that. A lot is made of how policing is one of the most dangerous jobs in America. But there are so many careers that are more dangerous, like logging, professional fishermen, <laughs> being a pizza delivery person. I understand that there are risks when you put yourself into a situation where other people may be armed and dangerous, but there's so much protecting officers, ideally their training, but also like their equipment. They're not at that big of a threat when it comes to how likely they are to die compared to a lot of other careers. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, just because there's other people that are at more risk doesn't mean that this risk shouldn't be minimized. Although maybe some of that $2.3 million could go to loggers and helping buy them uh, some safety equipment. But certainly the threat is still there. And I think that's indicated by the number one in-demand police vehicle is a 10-officer, 16,000-pound armored tank that drives 80 miles an hour and, quote, takes bullets like Superman. Enter the Lenko Bearcat G3. I want one of those. What would you even do with it? Where would you park it? I'd drive around and take bullets like Superman. You can't afford to fill that gas tank and you know it. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably very true. (laughs) I can't even afford to fill my Subaru. I think that the... Lenko Bearcat and the overemphasis on how dangerous policing is as a job kind of go hand in hand. There is an increasing vocal advocacy of the police and how sacrosanct they are in our society, and they must be protected at all costs. And it's so dangerous to be a police officer. It's not as dangerous as other jobs, but in the minds of the people who support them, they're putting themselves in danger. So they must be protected. And it justifies allowing these types of expenditures from governments, not just because the dollar value is so exorbitant, but the actual equipment that they are buying is ridiculous. It it might be overkill, but in one instance, a gunman outside of Tyler, Texas, shot and killed his neighbor. And then when police arrived at his home, he unloaded at least 35 rounds from an AK-47 into a newly bought Lenko Bearcat. From pretty close range, 
And eventually a police sniper was able to kill the gunman. No one else was injured. And none of those 35 rounds penetrated the Bearcat. So everybody got out of the situation safely. And when, you know, we're complaining about police technology and police weaponry as it gets more and more militarized, but just the general public is looking more and more militarized at the same time. So maybe this balances things out. You're pointing to one particular example in which this equipment was utilized. It sounds pretty appropriately. And they did the right thing and and took down somebody who was expressing a violent desire to kill the police. I find it unlikely that this would never be used for nefarious means. And at what point could any private citizen defend themselves against something like this? I guess that's what makes this debate so difficult is this sort of technology, whether it's robots or tanks, whatever, is only used in these extreme circumstances. So it's not like we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of sample points to look to where we can really easily measure out, well, the existence of this tank saved X number of lives at the cost of Y number of lives. And on net, you know, we're doing we're doing pretty well here. It's not that simple. And it's a lot of hypothetical situations of people saying, well, if the police hadn't had this, what would have happened? You know, we don't know. That same instance in Tyler, Texas, maybe a negotiator could have talked that person out of the building. And like you were saying earlier, because they had a tank, super easy to roll a sniper up, take the guy out, no one else hurt. Maybe it could have ended better otherwise, or maybe without the tank, some of those rounds of the AK-47 would have hit police officers and we would have had more deaths on our hands. Yeah, it makes it really difficult to weigh this out when we're when we're talking in extreme circumstances and hypotheticals. It's pretty unlikely that the average private citizen just like living in their home, not bothering anybody is going to have a, a bear cat <laughs> roll up on them. God, I hope not. But we are starting to see a lot more interactions between the police and private citizens when it comes to entanglements in the public. Specifically, we have seen an uptick in protests and the interaction between the police and the citizens engaging in their right to demonstrate. Yeah, I think Occupy Oakland would be a good example of this, where the use of excessive force by police against demonstrators resulted in over $6 million in reparations being paid by the city to protesters who were injured by police. That could have been like six robots. Did I tell you that I may be part of a class action lawsuit against the federal government? You did not. Can I get in on this? <laughs> no, unless you were there in Portland the day I got tear gassed. Would they be able to prove that I wasn't? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, in this case, it was ultimately the feds who deployed the tear gas. And there was a local law firm that was seeking people who had uh, tear gas exposure and any subsequent uh, ill effect because of it. But there are people who are overall starting to react pretty strongly to the amount of over-policing that is happening and the types of tactics that the police are using. In the case of tear gas, it's generally not lethal. And we're talking a lot about lethal force here, but it is really harmful. And even if a robot doesn't kill a person, even if a tank doesn't run over a person, they can still really hurt some people. Mm -hmm. And it definitely changes the equation. What we've been talking about so far is, okay, how do we balance out the well-being and the safety of police officers, 
public safety and the rights of suspected criminals or we're pretty sure they're criminals. But now, as police take on roles of dealing with protesters, nobody's breaking a law oftentimes. They are out there exercising their rights to free speech, to assembly, etc. And I, I think that that has to change this calculus in a, in a certain sense in terms of the power we give the police to deal with those individuals versus dealing with suspected or definite criminals. In the instance of protests and the way that they're being treated right now by the police, it is highly indiscriminate, which is a big problem. In a lot of protests, especially ones that do end up having some police action, the people who are kind of the instigators are a very small minority of the overall group, perhaps 20 people out of hundreds that may be there. But everybody else gets exposed to the police action that is done in response to it. Not just the people who are there for the protest, but in the case of downtown Portland, we're talking about a substantial number of unhoused people. And there are quite a few people who live just like in their apartments or condos in downtown Portland as well, who did not engage in the protests whatsoever. If there are bigger and better weapons to handle things that the police determine need to be handled, and they hurt more and more people who have nothing to do with the actual issue, that's a huge concern. And it doesn't seem like this is going away. I think it's safe to say that we're seeing more and more protesting on larger and larger scales, not less. And if local police are not ready to handle that, I'm not sure that more weapons and armor is the answer, like putting a silicone carbide Band-Aid on a bullet hole. And maybe the lawsuits will actually be what persuades them to change their tactics, because as we've expressed already, they seem to care a lot about their money <laughs> to fund all of their cool vehicles and shit like that. So perhaps if we take some of it away, it'll start to be like, I don't know, a consequence. Mm -hmm. Talking about the protest also makes me think, I guess this is related, but different in a manner is tomorrow at the time of this recording is January 6th. And that's the, do we want to call it an anniversary of the U.S. Capitol riots? It's the anniversary of when, my, when I got my first COVID vaccine. I went and got a shot and I came back and looked at my phone and went, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> but that's a that's a really scary scenario, I think, because, uh, well, on one hand, the police could have used better technology, more militarized equipment to stop a literal army of insurgents trying to overthrow our government. But at the same time, some of that army was comprised of law enforcement. So what if the protesters, members of law enforcement, had had access to some of this equipment? That, that's kind of a scary thought. I think the January 6th example is a really good piece of evidence that points to legitimate concerns about modern policing. When they have tools available to them and they carry seditious mindsets like they did on January 6th, we should be concerned about what they're going to do to private citizens who are not doing anything to harm other people. The members of Congress that day were not doing anything to harm other people, unless you think certifying an election is harmful. No, and we're at the same time threatened with assassination. So this is definitely complicated. We, we want to save lives, but whose lives are worth more? Uh, what are the most 
realistic scenarios here? What precedents are we setting? There's no real clear answer to this. Speaking of clarity, though, I think that that brings us to surveillance, the second of the topics we wanted to cover today. We'll start by discussing persistent surveillance systems. These are the types of systems that capture images of an entire city every second, picture, 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 constantly uploaded to massive hard drives, allowing analysts to review it several weeks later, perhaps. This is like Google Earth with TiVo capability, but much cooler names. These systems are called things like Predator, Argus, Constant Hawk, Angel Fire, and my favorite, Gorgon Stare. Those all sound like Top Gun like <laughs> call names or whatever they're Maverick, Goose, Angel Fire. <laughs> well, and it and it makes sense because once again, under the theme of militarization of police technology, these were all developed for the war in the Middle East. Uh, if a roadside bomb, for example, exploded while the camera was in the air, analysts could zoom into the exact location of the explosion and then rewind to the moment of detonation. You know, if they if they keep their eyes on that spot, they could further rewind the footage to see a vehicle, for example, that had stopped at that location to plant the bomb. Then they could backtrack to see where the vehicle had come from, marking all of the addresses it had visited. They could also fast forward to see where the driver went after planting the bomb, perhaps a residence or a rebel hideout or a stash house of explosives. Okay, I can see the utility of that. But this isn't Iraq. This is the type of technology that if used in private citizens' lives would kind of indicate that the government thinks that they're at war with us as just people. I suppose, but let's go back to our SWAT team example where the SWAT team breaks into the wrong house and people die because of it. Imagine if we combine that with this technology. So now a crime is committed. They're able to look at the footage of a bank that was robbed, for example, look at a car, rewind it, see where the car that robbed the bank came from, and that's the house. No more breaking into the wrong homes anymore. Maybe, but there is a level of trust that needs to be established between the people and the police or the government as a whole. An example of when that trust was completely voided is in 2016, the city of Baltimore, Maryland, which is not Afghanistan, not Iraq, not a war zone, typically, implemented a persistent surveillance system, and they did not tell the residents of the city. Doesn't that sound like a breach of the right of privacy? Yeah, definitely when we don't know about it, it seems like this is a little sketchier. One argument I could see for a system like this would be an argument of deterrence which is perhaps one of the strongest arguments for it. If people know they're being watched, they're a lot less likely to commit crimes. So it seems a bit counterproductive. I guess there'd just be a revolt against the city that tried to use this, but letting the city know about it would certainly help this deterrent aspect of it. If nobody knows that the system exists, they're going to continue to commit crimes and solving crimes after they've happened is nowhere near as good as preventing them from happening in the first place. I'm going to kind of agree with you. I'm glad you're sitting down because I'm sure that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> I think most people in most uh, countries such as the United States or other countries where technology is easily accessible 
probably have a reasonable expectation that they're being recorded almost any time they go out in public. Even if it's not through a surveillance system in their city, there are ring doorbells. So if you walk down the street, you're probably getting photographed by almost every house that you're walking past. There are a lot of people who have dash cams, mostly in Russia, but some here too. And overall, people just have private surveillance set up kind of everywhere. I don't know if it's a big difference if the government's doing it too, whether or not they tell us about it, but I would rather know. And I don't think there's a harm in telling us that they're doing it. That That's true. And I also think that the really common refrain, anytime there's accusations of breaches of the right to privacy, is if you aren't doing anything wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about. We heard that a lot with the Patriot Act. If you're not a terrorist, why does it matter if the government's listening to your phone calls? It's drawing those lines again, though. When I'm out in public, sure, I have done actions that are visible by other people by being in public whatsoever, whether it's walking to the library or trying to hold up a bank. Other people could see it and other people could film it, and I can't control that. But how invasive is this going to be? Are these systems that can see in front inside our home's windows, uh, are they going to be tapping our phones with robots and tanks? I don't know how this technology works. The thing is, though, I've almost never heard anybody that's able to enunciate the tangible harm to losing your right to privacy. You know, it feels icky. It might be a bit embarrassing. Some of the things that this anonymous person on the other side of the phone or looking at the camera sees or hears that you're doing. But realistically, it doesn't tangibly impact your life in any way versus the ability to catch criminals or prevent crimes that do result in theft or battery or murder. Isn't that a fair trade-off? Like, yeah, somebody might listen to your conversation, but society at large is much less often victimized by criminals. One, I think if anything makes me feel icky, it should automatically be illegal. Two, I don't want anyone listening to my phone conversations because I talk a lot of shit about people. And that's not just embarrassing. It could like ruin my family. So there are reasons that I don't want this stuff to get out. I should be able to have a safe conversation with a confidant, even if it doesn't have any like pertinence to national security, being able to speak freely is a really important value for my overall state of mind. I suppose. And at its core, if we want to get, you know, appeal to authority-ish about it, it is a constitutionally protected right. So whether there is a tangible harm or benefit or not, doesn't really matter at the point where we've just decided it is a right that is granted. So just because of the Constitution, this does seem to be crossing some sort of line. Well, the Constitution wasn't just pulled out of thin air. The right to privacy was an integral part of being able to have a freedom of conscience, which was a fundamental aspect of being able to form and choose their own government. Being able to privately discuss or formulate the ideas about how you want to be governed and how much of your own sovereignty you're granting to the powers that be, that has an actual tangible benefit for people who value freedom, but also don't want to be writing every single law by themselves. Mm -hmm. That's true. And, and definitely as the lines between what is legal and what is moral get more and more blurred, 
it does make it scary to hand over more and more power to agencies who are enforcing particular legislations or mandates. This reminds me of the surveillance system in Batman, The Dark Knight, I think, where they turn every cell phone in the city into a microphone and then basically use principles of sonar, because he's a bat, to map out the whole city and find the Joker. And when uh, Morgan Freeman's character discovers it, he calls it unethical and dangerous and quits Wayne Enterprises. And I mean, let's be real here. If Morgan Freeman thinks it's wrong, who are we to argue? This sounds like it would be a pretty unlikely scenario, but a lot of our home tech can actually be hacked and not just things like our Amazon devices. I won't say the name in case it triggers her, but even yeah, I, things... I do have her <laughs> just to the right of me. So <laughs> behind the curtain a little bit, uh, very frequently, Josh has to yell at her to shut up because he'll say something and she thinks that it's an instruction to her and it's just not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but things like our RoboVax especially ones that are Wi-Fi or Bluetooth enabled, like the one I have here, can be hacked to not only get the floor plans of our homes because they map out the floor to vacuum it, but they can actually be used somewhat as devices to transmit sound and could record conversations as well. And if the government has a prevailing need to invade our privacy, who's to say that my Roomba is not going to be the thing that takes me down? I'd throw that out the window right now if I were you. I think you should be pointing out the hypocrisy of me being so anti-robot, but I have a robo-vacuum. <laughs> I thought you used a broom, your witch's broom. Oh, wow. I have carpeting. That would never work. <laughs> I like how you're good with the witch's thing, but not the not the hardwood floors. Oh, yeah. I'm so down with witches. No question. A- another type of surveillance. So that's that's persistent surveillance technology. Watching an entire city at all times, everything all of us do. Another type of surveillance that carries with it concerns regarding civil liberties is facial recognition technology. Right. This is another tool for law enforcement to identify potential criminals, but this one comes with a really troubled past in particular when it comes to communities of color. Yeah, in a certain sense, this is like artificial intelligence or machine learning where you input enough data into the programming, into the technology, and then it's able to spit out results in terms of. I think that this picture is this person. And at its core, there were just really low amounts of data put in for communities of color. And so it, like the police force that used it, uh, just thought everyone of a specific race just kind of looks the same. All of these tools have the potential to do things very accurately and very well, but they are built by and programmed by people who carry with them a lack of complete knowledge about every single thing that they should be considering, and also conscious and unconscious biases, which could alter how they actually create these systems and technologies. There are still going to be the elements of the human psyche in systems which apparently lack human control, elements, faces. You cannot make a system like this and take the human element out of it completely unless we train robots to build other robots without bias. But I bet we'll get there someday. And what makes this particularly dangerous is it has a facade of certainty. So it's not a cop on the street saying, hey, I think that this person looks like the suspect's description that we got. And people say, "Okay, well, 
obviously you could be wrong here. This is a computer program. This is facial recognition technology. So of course it must be right. And that facade of certainty carries with it just a lot more weight when it comes to getting people behind bars, potentially the wrong people behind bars. And so I think it's important to recognize that just because it is advanced technology doesn't mean that it doesn't have flaws to it. And we've seen how people, especially people in serving on juries, react to technology and thinking that it could be too crucial, invaluable. And the CSI effect comes to mind, and especially with this type of thing, that people felt that there was a certain technology that would be the ultimate arbiter of justice, and that it was an insufficient case if it didn't have specific technologies involved in it, or admitting that there was some fallibility with the technologies that were used, which really made things seem like absolute truths that still had gray areas. But that makes me wonder, you know, is this something that's inherent to the system or is it just a current limitation to the technology? We did an episode on artificial intelligence and our guest was talking about a particular website that tries to draw cats and it's real bad at drawing cats. But presumably at some point in the probably near future, this most advanced human technology will be able to draw a picture of a cat. Um, And similarly here, is this something we throw out because currently the technology is lacking? It isn't have enough accurate data input into it? Or is that something if we solve these problems and it advances a little bit, this could be a really useful tool? But will we be exclusively relying on technology in the future and completely removing people from the equation? Even if we find them fallible, shouldn't there be some element of our actual humanity involved in meeting out justice? I don't know. You know, you're saying that the the main problem with this technology is the human error that can potentially go into it. So if human error is the problem, I don't think that having direct human to human contact or giving them direct control over scenarios, the answer, it, it might be that ceding some of that control to technology is the solution here. I'm just concerned I'll never get a chance to do a jury nullification. <laughs> is that on your 2023 bucket list? I got dismissed from a jury because I said there was a difference between right and wrong and legal and illegal. And a robot's never going to give you that answer when you go through voir dire. Mm, Maybe they heard you on the podcast. No, this was a long time ago. Mm, We don't want her on our jury. No, goodbye. (laughs) And I think that sort of summarizes the episode as a whole. Again, going back to the idea of these things, whether it's tools for force, tools for surveillance. They're exactly that. They're they're tools. And questions of their implementation and whether that implementation is erroneous sort of makes us ask, is it worth trying to fix it? Is it worth keeping it around? If we fix it, do things get better? Or if we keep it around and we start to implement it, does it slowly creep into you know, that slippery slope to a place where we've gone way too far. And now we have given these police organizations that are there to protect society, have we given them too much power to where now they are the biggest threat to society rather than the guardian of it? Despite my obvious concerns about the overall misuse of a lot of this technology, I recognize 
that we are heading into an inevitable future. There is going to be an increasing amount of technology involved in policing, robots, tanks, artificial intelligence, what have you. So in light of that, we're going to have it. We should strive to make it the best it could possibly be. And I do see a way that technology can be perfected as far as, you know, we can define what perfection is to go beyond our human incapabilities and perhaps be completely unbiased systems, be systems that never, ever shoot a civilian who shouldn't be shot, et cetera. And that is, I think, the most realistic scenario for making sure we balance having this type of technology and ease of access to utilize it, but also make sure that we are not victimized by the state. But if we implement this and it gets to be safe, reliable, doesn't trample on any of our rights, can we still call it Gorgon Stare? I just want to keep the name. I don't think we have a choice <laughs> on that one. I think you're going to have to call it Gorgon Stare. I think that this episode brings back we we already mentioned it, a lot of the concerns that we had with the artificial intelligence episode. And that is there is a lot of potential for good, also a lot of potential for harm. The problem is, and maybe this one's a bit more reasonable than artificial intelligence, we might not know which direction the technology is going to take until it's too late. That's the scary thing with artificial intelligence, particularly, is once it's advanced past a certain point, we kind of can't rewind it. For this stuff, theoretically, you know, we have a board of supervisors in San Francisco saying, yes, we will implement this technology. Then people point out, we think this is more dangerous than you originally imagined. They're able to reverse it. Theoretically, this is still remaining within our control. If it is abused, if mistakes happen, if we see just a power creep, of municipal police, it could be reversed. But at the same time, that's certainly not the way the trends seem to be going. So while theoretically it's something we can control, I think that police agencies across the country have been increasingly militarized, increasingly reliant on technology, bigger weapons, more expensive weapons, more destructive capabilities, more surveillance power, more capacity to trample on rights. So yeah, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of scary. I definitely see the short-term value to a lot of these technologies, but that long-term risk makes me hesitant. So let's put it in terms of pop culture, because that's what I understand. Which of these three scenarios do you think is the most likely? One, the matrix. Like these robots are going to gain a level of sentience and make us like their bitches. Two, that one Black Mirror episode where it's a robot dog that looks a lot like the Boston Dynamics dog and it hunts that lady until it loses its like solar battery. Or three, that one episode of Community where the convicts are all attending classes on segways with iPads on them and one of the segways tries to push Jeff down the stairs. Definitely killer segways. Yeah, those the, the creator of Segway, did you know this? The creator of Segway was killed on a Segway. He like drove off a cliff. No, I didn't know that. That's horrible. I, I, I don't know that, why I'm laughing, but I can't stop. <laughs> but I think it, it punctuates the entire thing that we're talking about. If we don't have adequate control over these systems, we, the people, could become the victims of them. Mm -hmm. All right. Killer robots, okay. Killer Segways, hard no. 
God, regular segues hard. No, I don't. I'm not down with that. <laughs> and ironically, there are police now that instead of riding horses, do use segues to patrol areas. Yep, there sure are. It doesn't look anywhere near as cool. It looks horribly uncool. But you know what? I'm okay with the mythos of policing being cool, gradually eroding because of segues. Maybe Operation Segway just needs a cooler name, like Constant Hawk or Angel Fire. You can you you can put lipstick on a pig, but we all know. All right. Well, this is <laughs> until about two minutes ago. Back to our regularly scheduled indubitably programming with our more serious topics and deep analysis on both sides of issues that are relevant to your world. I think talking about TV and movies is still pretty relevant, I must say. But it is nice to be back in the swing of things and back to our usual banter and talking about some pretty serious stuff in the process. Speaking of back to usual, here is your usual reminder that if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do it at IndubitablyPod on Facebook or Twitter. And if you'd like to, in 2023, I know it was your New Year's resolution, leave us a rating or review. We would also appreciate that on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're like, no, my New Year's resolution was not that. It was just random acts of kindness. Consider reviewing us and giving us five stars, your random act of kindness for the day. Thank you in advance for that. We appreciate it. Welcome to 2023. And we look forward to invading your ear holes once again next week. Operation Earhole. Ew. <laughs> Not a good name? No. Okay, let's scratch that. It's like legitimately gross. <laughs> <laughs>